It is so good to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, I wanna welcome everyone who's here in the worship center as well as those joining us online. If we haven't met before, my name is Caleb and I'm one of the pastors here at Pleasant Valley focusing primarily on our 20-somethings and adult group life ministries. Even though I've only been on staff here for about three years, I've actually attended PV for about 25. Uh, This was the church where I accepted Christ, where God called me to the ministry, and one of the most fun parts about preaching this morning is just getting to look out at, at, at the crowd here and see so many faces of people that have impacted my journey, that God has used. And so I am just so incredibly thankful for this church, and it is just an honor to be opening up God's word with you this morning. Over the past few weeks, we've been continuing on in our series, Words to Live By, and I encourage you, go back and listen to those past messages. Pastor Merles was powerful in kicking it off, and Pastor Corey's message last week, uh, it was one of the best I've ever heard. Uh, I've listened to that multiple times this past week, and it just really deeply ministered to me. Uh, I think what you'll find is if you were to listen to Pastor Corey's message from last week, and then the message you're about to hear this morning, that they complement each other really well. It's kind of looking like looking at different facets of the same diamond of God's glory. So definitely go back and listen to Pastor Corey's message from last week. You know, as we think about some of our favorite Bible verses in this series, that's what this, this whole series is about, words to live by. What are some of our favorite passages of scripture? We know that it's not just those of us here this morning that have favorite Bible verses. It's also those just out in the world. And if you were to look through tabloids, social media, interviews, you would find that athletes and celebrities also have their favorite Bible verses. And just take a guess, what what would be some of the verses we might hear listed as their favorites from those athletes and celebrities? Would it be Philippians 4.13, or Jeremiah 29.11, or Psalm 23? Well, we know that for Oprah, her favorite Bible verse is Psalm 37.4, which says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And in a 2015 appearance on Stephen Colbert's late night show, Oprah talked about how much that verse meant to her. She said this, it says to me, if you focus on being a force for good, then goodness will come, which is also the third law of motion, which is also karma and the golden rule. Now, many of us have maybe heard similar interpretations of Psalm 37.4. Maybe we've seen it on coffee cups or maybe our grandmas knit it on a blanket or something like that. But... Here's the deal, you know, when we think about that interpretation of the passage, we understand why it's so attractive. You know, there's a sense in which many of us, when we read that passage, we think, okay, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I come to church consistently, maybe if I tithe a little bit more than normal, God will give me the desires of my heart. But actually, what I want you to find this morning is that that interpretation of Psalm 37.4 is so much smaller than what God actually means for that passage to convey to us. And one of my favorite things about this passage, one of the reasons it's a word to live by, is that it is incredibly practical. And I think you will see that, my hope is that you will see that as we continue along, that it is both a a beautiful promise, so theologically rich and yet intensely practical for our everyday lives. In order to understand the true meaning of Psalm 37.4, we need to read it in context. Again, it's easy for us to cherry pick verses and infer the wrong meaning from them. And we don't wanna do that. So we're gonna read the very first 11 verses of Psalm 37. So if you have your Bibles with me, turn or tap with me to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, we're gonna start in verse one. And while you turn there, I wanna give you just a little bit of background about the, the whole chapter. 
It was written by King David, and it's about 40 verses long. And for the sake of time, again, we're only gonna read those first 11 verses, but that's okay, because if you were to go back and read the entire chapter, which I encourage you to do, you would find that David repeats himself three or four times over the course of the chapter, so that by reading these first 11 verses, we get the essence of what David means to convey. So with that, that kind of context in place, let's read those first 11 verses of Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as delight and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So there is a ton that we could say about that passage. But for the sake of time, I want you to just notice a couple things at play in those verses. One of the biggest things we need to see is that in context, this passage is not primarily about God giving us what we want, carte blanche. Instead, the focus is far more about not envying what other people have so that you can be content with what God has given you. And this makes perfect sense in context because it would have been so easy for the people of Israel to envy the other nations around them. Israel was a tiny and weak nation compared to the other surrounding countries. It would have been easy for God's people to be envious of the money and the possessions and the renown and the mighty military might of the other nations. But God is telling them that they have everything they need in him. In fact, God tells his people that they have an inheritance in him that is far greater than anything else that the other nations have. But in order for them to see and to celebrate their inheritance, they must have their desires tuned to God's desires. God is telling us through this passage that the key to contentment is to fight envy by finding our deepest delight in God. So in order for us to understand the true meaning of Psalm 37.4, we need to talk about two primary themes. First, we need to identify the reality and the danger of envy. And then second, we can focus on what it means to delight in the Lord and have all of our desires be tuned to his. So first, we'll focus on envy and how dangerous it is, and then we're gonna focus on what it means to delight in the Lord and have him be the chief of our desires. So let's begin by focusing on what it means to envy and how envy fuels our discontentment. The textbook definition of envy is a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, quality, or luck. We can put it another way and say this. Envy is when we desire something we don't have that someone else does have. Envy is a universal human emotion since the fall. 
and God explicitly speaks against it in Psalm 37, seven, when he says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. It's like God saying, don't be envious of what others have. Be content with what I've given you. Be content with me. I am enough. The Israelites would have looked out at the other nations and they would have been envious of the might and the money and the power of those other nations. And they had to identify those sources of envy in order for them to tune their heart to God and know what places of envy to fight. Before we ourselves fight feelings of envy, we have to identify what it is that we desire and what fuels our envy. So what is it for you? What are you most envious of? What is it that you desire? Are you envious of friends with successful and high-paying careers? Are you envious of a joyful marriage of your friends while your marriage is just fraught with conflict? Or maybe it's just marriage in general. Maybe you are here this morning and you're single and you're crying out to God and yet he doesn't seem to be providing you with a spouse. Or maybe you're envious of the close and affectionate relationship your friends have with their kids and their grandkids while you seem to be estranged from yours. Or maybe you're envious that your friends got accepted into the college that you've always dreamed of while you just received the rejection letter in the mail. What is it for you? In order for this sermon to make any sense at all, in order for us to understand Psalm 37.4, we have to be able to identify what we desire and what we are envious of. Envy fuels our discontentment. When we dwell in envy, Satan pushes us to believe the lie that God is not enough. This envious desire goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve believed the lies of Satan and trusted in Satan's promise rather than God's. And because they believed Satan's promises rather than God, death, destruction, and discontentment followed. And to top it off, the thing that Adam and Eve thought would satisfy them didn't actually satisfy them. So they were just filled with even more discontentment. Every single time we sin, every single time we envy, we believe the faulty promise that the things we desire can satisfy us more than God can. We believe the lie that a healthy marriage will satisfy us more than God. We believe the lie that a successful career will satisfy us more than God can. We believe the lie that having kids will satisfy us more than God can. We believe the lie that financial security will satisfy us more than God can. We believe the lie that temporary pleasure will satisfy us more than God can. We believe the lie that temporary comfort of a white lie or something like that will satisfy us more than God can. We believe that the lie of social media influence will satisfy us more than God can. Every single time we sin, every time we envy, we believe a lie, a faulty promise. And I get it, as we look at what others have, it is so easy to envy. It is so easy to be woefully discontent with what God has given us and be discontent in who God is for us. But notice what Psalm 37 says. Verse nine tells us that it's not those in a healthy marriage who are satisfied, but rather those who wait for the Lord that shall inherit the land. And verse 11 tells us that it's not those with successful careers who are truly satisfied, but rather the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. You know, when Oprah talked about Psalm 37, she may have been wrong in her interpretation, but she was right to point to the golden rule and the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, there are allusions to Psalm 37 all over the place. 
to be honest, I, I never noticed this before I prepped for this message. But uh, it got to the point where there were so many different illusions that I was seeing that I just put the text of Psalm 37 on one side, and then I would just write in a verse from the Sermon on the Mount every time it felt like there was an illusion or a direct quote. And by the end, the whole document seemed to be read. I mean, I can't prove this, but I think Jesus had Psalm 37 in mind when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Again, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon ever, ever preached. And so the fact that it alludes to Psalm 37, I think it's significant for us today. So let me read the first few verses of the Sermon on the Mount, and here's what I want you to notice. Notice the people in this passage who are satisfied. So let's read. This is Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you notice the people that were satisfied in that passage? Notice that Jesus didn't say that it was the married or the famous or those with successful careers who will be ultimately satisfied. Rather, it will be the merciful, the pure in heart, the persecuted, the peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who mourn, and those who are poor in spirit. They will be those that are satisfied. And what else you can notice is that all of those people who are said to be satisfied, they have every reason in the world to be envious. They could envy wealth and safety and security and justice and more, yet these people are the ones that are gonna be satisfied. How is that possible? The people that have every reason in the world to envy, and yet they're the ones that are satisfied. How is that possible? It's possible because these people ultimately delight in the Lord. And it is through this delight that their desires are changed and fulfilled. So how do we fight envy? We resist How do we resist the promises of Satan? We fight envy with a superior promise, a superior pleasure. And that superior promise is that God is enough. God is the only one who will ultimately satisfy us. God is the only one who can fully and truly forgive us and give us lasting joy. Delighting in God means trusting that God is enough. And by delighting in God, we can be even more deeply satisfied in the other things of this world that we desire. Through God, many of the things we desire can be good things. A healthy marriage is a good thing. A successful career is a good thing. Having kids is a good thing. But apart from God or above God, these things turn into idols that seek to take the place of God on the throne of our affections. Only God can ultimately satisfy. And this has always been true. 
I want you to take a moment. I want you to put your thinking caps on with me because I want us to think about this theologically because I think the payoff is huge. Before there was money, before there was marriage, before there were corporate jobs or earthly fame, there was God. And before there was money and marriage and successful careers and earthly fame, God was perfectly and supremely satisfied in himself in the communion of the Trinity. God was the chief delight of God from all eternity past. And God didn't create marriage, careers, or money because he needed it to be satisfied. God was perfectly satisfied in himself for all of eternity past. When he created the world, his source of satisfaction did not change. God created the world and all that is in it to give good gifts to his people that would ultimately point us back to him. Through God, we can enjoy these gifts because those gifts were meant to further our worship and delight in the Lord. Those gifts were never meant to replace God as our ultimate source of delight. As a perfect being, God must desire what is perfect, and he must be satisfied in what is perfect. Otherwise, he wouldn't be perfect. And what's the only perfect being in the universe? What's God himself? So if God sought satisfaction in sex or marriage or money or anything like that, something that was less than him, he wouldn't be God anymore, and the whole universe would come crashing down. No, because God is perfect, God himself is the chief delight of his heart. Only God himself is big enough and perfect enough to satisfy the God of the universe. And catch this, if the infinite God of the universe can be satisfied in himself, then we finite beings can be satisfied in God too. In fact, God specially made us in his image so that we could be satisfied by the very same thing that God had been satisfied by for all of eternity past. That is amazing. By God letting us be satisfied in him above all else, he gave us an immense gift of love. It was an amazing thing. It is an amazing act of love. We are given the privilege of being totally satisfied in the same thing that satisfies God, the only one who can satisfy. And yet we so often turn to lesser things to give us satisfaction. We turn to money and sex and jobs and marriage and friendship and other things, and we tell God in doing so that he's not enough. It's not that our desire for other things are too big for God to fulfill. It's that those desires for other things are too small to ultimately satisfy us. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Another way to think about God as being the ultimate source of our delight, the one who can ultimately satisfy us, is to focus on the perspective of heaven. You know, we so often think about heaven as this perfect place of satisfaction and joy, and it is. But we need to focus on what we think will actually satisfy us in heaven. Because if we're honest, many of us look forward to heaven, not because of God, but because we think we'll get all of our favorite earthly things in greater measure. But you see, there's a flaw in that logic. If something doesn't satisfy us now, why do we think it would satisfy us later if we had more of it forever? 
You know, I love my great-grandma's homemade ice cream. It is my favorite food in the world. But if I had that every single day for the rest of eternity, it would grow old. I know we're not supposed to be able to have diabetes in heaven, but I think I could get pretty close at that rate. See, those things were never meant to satisfy us. They were always meant to point us to God. Another way you can think about heaven and our satisfaction in God is this. God is at the center of all delight in heaven. We will gaze upon his glory, be enraptured by his presence, and we will sing his praises forevermore. So if God is not our chief delight in this life, heaven will be absolutely miserable for us. If the main thing we pursue is not God, heaven will be boring, 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 boring. We need to focus on God as the core of our delight. If God is not at the core of our delight, if we don't desire God above all, again, we are never going to be satisfied. In order to find delight in God, we must strive to rest in his promises and rest in what he delights in. We must strive to see God's goodness and glory in the good earthly gifts he has given to us. God delights in his creation. He calls it good in the book of Genesis, and so we should delight in his gifts and creation as well. God delights in holiness and purity. He delights in mercy and justice. He delights in human flourishing. He delights in truth and goodness and beauty. And most of all, God delights in his own glory. It is when our desires are transformed to match God's desires that the desires of our heart will be ultimately fulfilled, just as Psalm 37.4 says. As we fight to find delight in God, we have to remember that he doesn't abandon us because this fight is hard. There are so many things put before us every single day that try to take the throne of our affections. It is so hard to find God as the greatest one in the universe. It is so hard to find satisfaction in God. If you have been a Christian for very long at all, you understand that. And if you're not a Christian yet, know that when the Holy Spirit calls you to himself, you will find that it is incredibly hard to put off sin because the things of this world are so tempting. But as we fight for joy in God, Again, we have to remember, he doesn't abandon us. He's with us every single step of the way. He is gracious, he's loving, he's compassionate. And yet, in that fight for joy, as we're in the trenches, it doesn't always feel that way. It can feel like, at times, God has abandoned us, or he's nowhere near to be found. I mean, again, Intellectually, I, I get that we can understand that we should be satisfied in God and that he loves us and that he's enough, but in actual human experience, it's hard to feel that way. It's incredibly hard. We can fight and fight and fight to delight ourselves in God, and yet it seems like nothing we cry out to him for is being given to us. You know, we can read the echo of, of, of uh, Psalm 37.4 in John uh, 15, where Jesus says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you will bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And yet, in the midst of that fight for joy, we can wonder if those words are even true. Again, we can know intellectually that God provides for us, and that he's enough, but emotionally, that's pretty hard. So maybe you're here this morning and you deeply desire a healthy marriage. You fought to find joy in God and you prayed for healing in your marriage for years and years and yet you're here today struggling to muster up any sense of affection for your spouse while you look at your friends and they are totally satisfied 
in their marriages from the outside. Maybe you're desperate for a job or you're miserable at your current job and you need to get out. And yet, despite of all your prayers and your attempts to find joy in God, it feels like he's not providing for you. And what's worse, God might seem to be providing for all of your friends as they thrive in their careers and they're satisfied in what they do. In all of this, you can begin to wonder if God really does care. You can begin to wonder if he really loves you. You can begin to wonder why he's withholding good gifts from you. And you can begin to wonder if he's stingy. Will he actually provide for you? Does he even care about you? So what is that thing for you that causes you to question God's goodness most? In what area of your life are you most tempted to believe that God is stingy? In what area of your life are you most tempted to doubt God's goodness and believe that he is withholding good things from you? What area of your life causes you to question God's love most? In the face of these questions, in the face of our heartache, in the face of our hurt, God reminds us that he has not abandoned us. He reminds us that despite what Satan might tell us, God really will provide. Psalm 37, 25 tells us this, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Jesus echoes this very same truth in the Sermon on the Mount when he says this, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I've been able to see a powerful picture of God's provision in my family's dog, Oreo. Oreo is going on 16 years old. Um, we, we have had her for so long. I mean, it's hard for me to remember a time without her. Uh, and, you know, she really is a member of the family. I mean, she, she sometimes gets treated better than my sister and I, I think. Uh, we just love her so incredibly much. And uh, if you've ever had pets, you know that sometimes they'll get sick, you take them to the vet, and a lot of times it's a, it's a quick fix, maybe a little medicine, maybe change a diet, and then within a week or two, they're good. But uh, that wasn't the case recently when we took Oreo to the vet. We took her in. She, she hadn't been doing very well. And uh, rather than just giving us a little bit of medicine and, and, and send this on our way, the vet sat us down and said that Oreo has a mass on her spleen, and she's only got either a few days to a few weeks to live. And again, it, it's hard for me to remember a time without her. And uh, for a while, it was kind of just, you know, shock. You know, I, I know that, uh, I know she's just a dog, but if you've ever had a pet, you know that they really are like members of your family. And finally, it hit me one day. I remember pulling into the PV parking lot just over here by the disc golf course, and I saw this little dog, and she was running around. She reminded me of Oreo, and just the dog was having the time of her life, and it finally hits me that uh, that, that won't ever be Oreo again. Uh, the, the end really is near. And uh, I'm not a very emotional person, but I, my allergies really started to act up, and uh, Someone even pulled in next to me and was trying to check and make sure I was okay, and I was trying to pass it off my allergies, and they knew better. But uh, as I'm sitting there, I'm listening to the new worship song called Gyra by Maverick City and Elevation Worship, and there's a line where they directly quote Matthew 6, 26. You know, if he watches over the sparrows, how much more will he love you? And this thought hits me. 
actually really a series of memories hit me. And I can picture my dad holding Oreo and feeding her bite by bite the pills and the food when she's struggling to eat. I can picture my mom holding Oreo as she shakes in pain. And then I picture Oreo earlier in life. And uh, I, I can picture my sister, you know, putting her in the same dress. You, you guys see the picture. And she's pushing her around in a stroll around the neighborhood, just proud as ever, Oreo with this big smile on her face, just eating it up. I can picture my grandpa, this kind of you know, really tough man, and uh, he, he doesn't want you to see his emotion, but I remember th there was one time where he thought no one else was around, and he's there picking her up and talking to her in this really soft voice, and was super embarrassed when we caught him. Uh, I mean, she, Oreo is a member of our family. We love her so much. E even our neighbors love her. Uh, we have a neighbor named Miss Mary, and she is, uh, she's a widow. Her only son has passed away. All of her loved ones are either out of state or have passed away. And so she's kind of become like another grandma to my family and I. I mean, she has my sister and I's pictures in her wallet. And Oreo is like her grandpuppy. And when my sister and I were in school, my parents were at work, uh, we would ask Miss Mary to come over and just let the dogs out real quick during the day. Something that was only supposed to take maybe four or five minutes. Just let the dogs out and, and you can leave. And what we found was that these visits were lasting three and four hours, literally. Uh, and what Miss Mary would do is she would come over and she would let Oreo out, but then sometimes she would literally bring steak over and prepare it for Oreo and feed it to her bite by bite. And then she would take her into the next room, she would pet her, she would give her a massage, she would talk to her, she would pray with her, and on Oreo's birthday and at Christmas, Miss Mary would give us money to get Oreo treats and toys. I mean, I'm serious when I say, I don't think there's ever been another dog that has been as loved as Oreo. And so as I'm sitting there trying to fight off my allergies in the church parking lot, it hits me. If God would love and care for this little dog Oreo so much through my family and I, how much more would he love and care for you and I? How much more would he care for us? How much more would he provide for us? And here's the deal. When we learned of Oreo's sickness, that didn't drive us away from her. It drew us near. Oreo didn't know how, how broken her condition was. She didn't know what her full diagnosis was. She just knew that things hurt, but we knew that, that there was a diagnosis. We knew that there was a mass in her spleen, and that drew us nearer to her. And it is the exact same with God. When God sees us struggling to find delight in him, he sees our broken desires. He doesn't run away from us. No, he draws nearer to us. He wants to see us healed. He wants to provide for us. He wants to care for us. Our sin, our broken desires does not drive God away. It's the only thing that qualifies us to go to God in the first place. And in fact, when God sees our broken desires again, he doesn't blow them off. He draws near. He knows every single one of our desires, and he will ultimately fulfill those desires, or he'll give you something better. God is not stingy. Jesus reminds us of this in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In the scope of eternity, there is nothing 
that God will withhold from us. And Paul powerfully reminds us of this truth in Romans 8.32 when he says this, God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, when God gave up his only son Jesus, he gave us everything. Now, again, I get that we can hear that and believe it intellectually, but do we actually believe it in our hearts? I doubt we fully do. You see, Jesus is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the redeemer of all things, the ruler of all things, the judge of all things, the one in whom all things we can find joy and contentment. If you had Jesus and nothing else, you would still have everything. But you might say, Caleb, again, I get that intellectually, but what about my pleasures and pursuits and desires here on earth? Well, God gives you those things in Jesus. See, do you desire to be loved? No one does or has or can love you more than Jesus, who both created you and despite your rebellion against him, redeemed you and offers you perfect joy and love with him forever. Do you desire to be known? No one loves you like Jesus does. They don't know you like Jesus does either. Not even you. Jesus has a gaze that pierces flesh and soul. He knows you perfectly, including all of the things that you don't wanna share, all of the skeletons in your closet. And yet he still freely gave his life up for you and welcomes you with open arms. You cannot be more known than you already are in Jesus. Do you desire authority? First Corinthians six tells us that in Christ, you will rule and reign with him at his right hand forever, even over angels. Do you desire security? You cannot be more secure than you are in Jesus. Jesus will defeat every enemy to his throne and by the blood he shed for you on the cross, if you put your trust in him, no one can stand against you if Jesus is on your side. He fights your battles and makes all of your joy and inheritance indestructible. And speaking of inheritances and riches, do you desire those? No one offers an inheritance like Jesus. When you become one with Jesus by faith, you share in his inheritance. And what is his inheritance? It's everything. It's the entire universe. It's all things. That's right, all things. Jesus has a monopoly on creation and joy, and it is all yours when you enter into a relationship with him. Do you desire peace? The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter two that peace is not a circumstance or anything else here on earth. Peace is a person and his name is Jesus. Are you self-conscious about your body? Do you desire a body without spot or blemish? Because of Jesus' redemption, if you are a Christian, you are guaranteed a resurrection body of unspeakable beauty that is impervious to age and sickness and injury and decay. Do you desire a spouse to live with you and live with you happily ever after? In Jesus, you have a perfect love and a perfect spouse. We as the church are his bride and will have life with him happily ever after forever. He will meet our every need and satisfy our every longing. The greatest joys, the greatest intimacies and the greatest comforts of an earthly marriage will look tiny and small compared to the intimacy and love that Jesus offers us when we are his bride in glory. You desire to change the world. In Jesus, we are given the infinite privilege of serving alongside him to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. 
You desire a world without death or pain. We are promised that in glory with Jesus. In him and by him, our pain, our death, and our sorrow will cease forever. The Bible tells us the only hindrance to you experiencing infinite joy in God is you because we are finite creatures. God has so much more that he wants to offer us than we can handle. There is no earthly thing that you desire that you couldn't have in greater measure in Jesus. And whatever you desire here on earth pales in comparison to Jesus. In Jesus, God gives us all things and shows us that he is for us. Our job is to trust and believe that Jesus is enough and that he is enough both to save and satisfy us. When we do that, we receive a salvation and a satisfaction in Christ that will last forever. I just wanna close with this thought. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered why salvation lasts forever? Now, there's a lot of reasons we can give, but I think, I think there's a core reason, and we see it in Ephesians 2, verses four to seven. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." One reason that salvation will take all will take all of eternity and more is because it will take all that time for God to lavish all of the riches of his grace upon us in Christ Jesus. Even eternity cannot contain all of the love and satisfaction that God has for his children. In glory, our delight will fully and finally be in God and he will satisfy all of the desires of our hearts because our desires will be his desires and his desires will be our desires. The ultimate expression of Psalm 37.4 is found in Psalm 27.4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. May that be our prayer in this life and the next. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are big enough to satisfy our desires. And God, as we fight for joy, as we fight to find delight in you, God, help us remember that you have not abandoned us. You're with us every single step of the way. Help us fight sin. Help us fight the temporary delights. And God, help us see your goodness and your glory that we might be satisfied in you above all else. That we thank you for Jesus, and in him we have salvation. And it is in his name we pray, amen.